Okay, I'm going to talk to you not about prayer today, but on the value of community. And uh, this morning I've, I've titled my message, Value Versus Cost. And I think we all know that there's, there's always a cost to something, but it's offset by the value we see in it. And just, just a quick story of how, how that can impact our lives uh, occurred to me this week, or happened to me this week, in that who knows that a lot of banking stuff is automated these days. Uh, a lot of stuff. I actually uh, applied for a passport this week as well. Um, and the, the automated process for that is marvellous. You just punch everything in. You don't have to go and get uh, you know, a JP to sign or a friend to sign the back of your photographs in tiny script that you can't read anymore. Uh, it's all done online. You, uh, you take it into the post office. Um, they put your photo uh, in their database and they send somebody a, an email with your picture in it and saying, do you know this person? Reward, $10,000. Um, <laughs> And so, th- so that works really well. But another automated system I came across uh, was at a bank. No groans? Hey. Um, and uh, for those of you who, who don't know, my father uh, passed away three months ago, uh, and I am the executor of his estate. And as part of that, those duties, I have to actually uh, start a bank account uh, to be able to disperse his inheritance to the rest of the family. And so I went into the bank and they said, not a problem. What we'll do is we'll set up an account and it's called uh, STL Peter Matthews, because that was his name, Peter. Um, And that stands for uh, uh, the estate of the late. Estate, E-S-T-L Peter Matthews. And so the bank knows it's the estate of the late. Do you know what late means apart from tardy? It means that he is no more. He has died. I have a death certificate. It's true. And so the bank, very kindly, there was a very nice person I was dealing with, set up very sensitively for me this bank for the estate of my deceased father. Three days later, he got a debit card (laughs) for his account. Now... It's three months ago, still sad at the loss of my father, but the devastation has gone. But can you imagine somebody who had just been bereaved and was going through this and was really quite sensitive to that, to receive a debit card for their deceased loved one in the mail? Um, I thought it was slightly funny. But it could. this is where if we don't have person-to-person interactions, if we don't actually have a sense of community, this is where our automated systems cost us. And so whatever we're doing, there's always a cost as well as a benefit. And it makes it easier for people to do, but it also makes it easier for machines to stuff up right royally. And so that's, that's sort of the theme I want to pursue in our talk about community this morning. Because who knows that whatever we do, whether we take up something new in life or whether it's something we've been doing for a while, there's always a cost to it and there's always a value to it. And whether we've we've just started going to the gym, whether we're taking up a sport, whether we're we're engaging in a hobby, there are a couple of questions we always ask ourselves. How much is it going to cost? If you sign up to the gym, 
how much is it going to cost? I heard of a gym the other day that decided it wanted to go broke. An honest gym. What they did was they, they sign you up for a year and they charge you $1,000 for a year, which I think is fairly expensive for a gym. But every time you go to the gym, you take $5 off that total. <laughs> and so if you actually go to the gym, it could end up costing you nothing. But they make their money because like most gyms, people sign up and never go. And so I thought that was a great incentive to actually go to the gym because it becomes cheaper the more you actually go. So we ask how much is it going to cost and then we ask what's in it for me? And these are legitimate and reasonable questions to consider because there's always a cost. It can be monetary, but it may also just be the cost in the time that we spend or the effort that we make or even the discipline that we may have to take on to actually do something in particular. There's also a cost. But what's the benefit? Because that's the second question. If we take the plunge and take something on board into our lives, it's usually because we can see a benefit or benefits that outweigh the cost. And the ironic thing is that when we come to church and become part of a faith community, we're often in a place where the thought uppermost in our mind is what's in it for me? We don't often come to church thinking, what's this going to cost? <laughs> and I think that's rightly so. The church community should be set up in such a way that we are focused on leading people to the key answer to that question, what's in it for me? Which is to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The number one value, and this should override all others, is to develop our spiritual connection with our Lord and Saviour, Jesus. That is the first value of becoming part of a faith community. If we asked Jesus what the cost would be, he would reply in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Sounds really wonderful, doesn't it? But in there, I'd say hidden in there, but it's not hidden, but in there is the fact that there is still a cost. The cost isn't onerous, but the cost of following Jesus is there. He doesn't say, come to me because I don't have a yoke and I'll take all your burdens. He says, it's better if you do it my way and your burden will ease if you, if you listen to me. But there's still something that we have to bear. There is a cost that we have to bear. And this has become a sticking point. For many people, both Christians and non-believers, because our current political and cultural thinking and expression has resulted in Western societies greatly diminishing the value of the Christian faith community. And what this has resulted in is that people actually then start to question the cost. Did you know that the cost of following Jesus has not changed in 2,000 years? The cost of following Jesus doesn't go up and down with inflation. It doesn't follow the International Monetary Fund. There is no interest attached to it. 
that goes up and down. There's no mortgage attached to it, which gives us hardship. But the thing is that people's perception of that cost has challenged many Christians, and they've lost sight of the value of the Christian community and focused solely on the cost. And doing so has eroded many people's faith. I like this quote from Oscar Wilde. He says, a fool is someone who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. And people who are only in life to count the cost often miss out on the value of what life can give them if they're prepared to pay that cost. Now, while we don't want to emphasize the cost of following Jesus, it's good to look at what Jesus himself said about following him. Because he had some interesting things to say. If we look in Luke 9:57, it says, As they were walking along, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Sounds a bold statement. But Jesus replied, Foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. So I think that's... Did he answer the question there? What's going on? And then he said to another person, come follow me. And the man agreed. But he said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. You don't know whether he was going to kill him and then bury him. It all sounds a bit sus, doesn't it? But Jesus told him, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach about the kingdom of God. And another said, yes, Lord, I will follow you. But first, let me say goodbye to my family. But Jesus told him, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. And so after reading that, my first question is, what is Jesus talking about here? I mean, sounds a bit harsh. But we have to realize that Jesus is using idioms and cultural references that were familiar to the audience at the time, but are perhaps not quite so familiar to us. I mean, how many people here have actually plowed a field? I have. (laughs) And I happen to know that if you're plowing, and and this is with a single blade plow, I didn't have to do a lot of that, thank goodness. But if you look back, guess what? You lose control (laughs) and the thing goes everywhere. And so the references here, I mean, the son of man has no place to rest his head. We know Jesus wasn't destitute and that he didn't have a place to sleep at night. So he's not referring to the fact that he's poor and lives out in the open and he's homeless. Walk a mile in my boots. Just putting that in there. But he was actually referring to the fact, because he didn't refer to himself as Jesus, he used the son of man, which is the term he used to describe himself to reference the fact that he was sent by God. And so he's saying, the son of man's home is not here on earth, it's in heaven. And so Jesus was actually referring to that phrase we we often use that we're called to be in the world, but not of it. That, you know, he's saying that we need to resist the idea that that there's the pressure of society to devalue our faith because it has a heavenly source and not an earthly source. That we are ambassadors of heaven here on earth. And so what he's saying about that is that you, know, you can't follow Jesus but still be pinned to your earthly values. To, rec- to, to think that earth is your home. 
Heaven is our home. Being with Jesus is where our home is. And that's what he's saying. We've got to actually get rid of a bit of worldly thinking to be able to follow Jesus. The idea of returning to bury his father sounds a bit cruel to say, well, you can't go to the funeral. Well, it's fairly likely from cultural, other cultural references that I, I looked up that he's not referring to the actual burial of his father. The Jewish culture at the time had a, a, a ritual burial uh, which happened sometime after the actual uh, burial itself which was a, a, a which is a community ritual to sort of sort of hasten the dead or, or to ease their passage into the afterlife um, and so they're fairly sure that Jesus is actually talking about the fact that this guy actually wanted to continue his religious rituals and make them part of his walk with Jesus and Jesus is saying no look that's a spiritually dead thing to do. You're doing a ritual which is not going to bring you life. It's not going to bring other people into the kingdom of God. It's actually a useless thing in your life. Don't do it. Follow me. And so he's not actually being mean and saying he can't bury his father. But it's, it's really, because we all do it. We have rituals and habits in our life that derail our faith walk because we try to shoehorn them in to our relationship with Jesus. It can, it can be cultural things, it can be family things, it can just be the, the way we were wired. You know, I think God probably gets sick of people coming up to him and saying, oh, accept me as I am, Lord, that's just the way I am and you can't change me. And I know people must tell, say it to God because they say it to me often enough. <laughs> Jesus is just saying, leave those things behind. Saying goodbye to my family. This is, what, this is what you call a loophole or a back door. Because Jesus didn't tell this person that they had to say goodbye to their family to follow him. There was no requirement in the Bible anywhere that says, as soon as you accept Jesus Christ, you've got to leave your family. Anybody read that anywhere? This person was saying, look, I want to get all my ducks lined up in a row, and then I'm going to follow you. Yeah. And you know what that does? A, it stops people following Jesus, because they say, well, it's not right. I, I'm not holy. The number of people who say, well, I couldn't follow Jesus because my life is such a mess. I'm thinking, yeah, okay, I'm not sure you've got the idea of what following Jesus really is about because Jesus loves people whose lives are a mess because he can sort them out. <laughs> and the other thing is that if, if people get involved in a faith community and they have this this idea in the back of their heads, well, I didn't say goodbye to my family, so I haven't approached this right, so if it doesn't work, I'll just go back to my family because it's obvious this isn't going to work because I haven't set it up right. And so we, we, we often do that. We put little, little um, escape clauses in our connection with God so that if things go pear-shaped, if things go, don't go the way we think they should, we can say, well, well, that obviously wasn't meant to be because I didn't, I didn't set this up right, so I'll, I'll just go and get this right, and when I've done that, perhaps then I'll come back and get connected with Jesus again. So, in a nutshell, the cost of following Jesus is having the courage to call yourself a citizen of heaven and act like it, to refrain from calling our cultural rit rituals Christian rather than actually ditching them and changing something, and to be wholehearted in our faith and not leave an escape route in case we become unpopular for being a Christian because our principles become controversial.
The value of a church community, on the other hand, can be summarized by four ways our life can be impacted and changed by our involvement. Because there's no denying that there's a cost. There's no denying that sometimes when, when people ask us about our faith, there are hard answers that we have to give that no, no, that's not the way Jesus thinks. That's not how he wants us to live our lives. And some people go away disappointed. But we need to recognize that the value of being part of a church community is greater than those costs. And the, the things that impact and bind our lives by actually being involved are fourfold, at least for the purpose of my message. There's probably more folds than this, but we're only going to do four this morning. The first thing that binds us all together is, guess what? Our unity in Christ. The thing that binds a church community is, is not the coffee machine or the tea. Because I sense that those are things that could actually divide a community. But it's our unity in Christ. We all come because we are here to worship and to follow and to praise our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Romans 12.5 says, So it is with Christ's body. We are part, many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. Our unity in Christ draws us together faster than anything else could. It connects people of different backgrounds and enables positive interactions that would never otherwise blossom. And that leads to, number two, shared experiences. Acts 2.44, all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. Now, I think when we read that, we tend to think of material things. And we think that they all got together and just piled all their, their, their watches and gold chains and, and uh, Nikes and stuff in the middle and said, whoever, whoever wants any of this stuff, you can all have it. But I think sharing isn't about just sharing stuff, is it? It's about experiences. We go to dinner parties to share food, but we also share experiences. We share our hurts and our fears and our desires and our, our successes and our failures, and we share prayer with one another. It's a shared experience which actually bonds and um, brings people closer together. We bond when we, when we do our outreach. Walking a mile in our boot, there it is again. I'm sure there'll be some moans and groans along the way until we get to the coffee shop. Spending a week in Fiji building houses. Nothing will bond people closer than exhaustion. Sweat. sweat. Blood, sweat and tears. I mean, you can't tell the difference in Fiji. It just pours out of you, whatever it is. And it's usually a bit of a reddish colour because it's muddy and dirty out there. But it's something which brings people to a shared experiencing, experience. Uh, other things, you know, we have church conferences. I think people uh, have this idea in their imagination that we go to church conferences to learn stuff. There's a small amount of stuff we learn, but most of it is actually connections with people who are like-minded, who are doing things we get ideas from, but we also exchange our journey with people. It strengthens us. Special events, women's spring events coming up. I'm turning this into a bit of an ad, really, <laughs> aren't I? Um, studying scripture together is a great tool as well. The third thing that 
our community brings us this, this idea of trust and vulnerability. Because community teaches people to actually become a part of each other's lives. And if it's going to work, we, we've got to make sure that we can become part of each other's lives in ways that are fun, in ways that are meaningful, that we treat other people with respect and sensitivity, and that we model openness to people, that we don't keep secrets, that we don't, we don't act one way on Sunday and the rest, uh, rest of the week we act a completely different way. We can't be sort of really nice in dinner party, but then come to church and not talk to those people on Sunday because, gosh, we saw them Wednesday. We don't want to see them again. We need to be open in our relationships, which leads us to the, my fourth point, which is accountability and commitment. I don't know about you, and for those of you who are, who are younger, this might not be the case, but I grew up in a, in a culture which valued the idea of independence, self-sufficiency, I guess. We, we, what was prized in my generation was the idea that you could do something yourself. If your car broke down, you could get under it and fix it. And if you couldn't, you rang your mates and they, we all got together and get under it and fix it. I can remember when I was a teenager and Vicky's brother had been lent a car um, because uh, Vicky was actually babysitting for a French family who'd gone overseas for a week and she had their child to look after in the family home and they'd left us the car, which was a column shift. I don't know if anybody remembers those. Column shift Holden. And... Uh, we were, I, I was driving Vicky somewhere. Um, it was obviously late teens, so I had a driver's license. Um, and, the, and the column shift snapped off. <laughs> Which was sort of annoying. Um, I managed to jam it in first gear and get it back home. And, and Drew and I just jacked the car up, f found out where it had snapped, got his dad's welder out, with, with his dad's permission. Um, and we just welded the thing back on. Gave it back to the family. They never knew, never knew the difference. <laughs> I'd like to think we actually didn't tell them that there had been an accident. But it was just that sort of... That wasn't, we weren't expected to just leave it there and say, oh, we'll call the mechanic. It wasn't even our thinking to do that. It was self-sufficiency. Now, I look at a car these days, and as soon as you take a cover off something, what you see underneath it is a computer chip. It's like... Do I oil it? Can I polish it? Sort of, it, it's beyond my self-sufficiency, um, which is actually a good lesson to learn because while that's a great value to encourage, it led to my generation having a real lack of understanding of the importance of being interconnected with other people, of actually using other people's skills, of actually getting to know other people so that we could help them. It was all about ourselves. We could stand strong and alone. And I think you know, this, this is something which our church culture encourages, that we, we aren't here alone to worship God. We're here as a, as a group of people that we, we need to have connections with. We aren't willing to make commitments to others or to ask for and give and receive accountability in the midst of struggles unless we recognize the value that other people can bring into our lives. And that 
means that we have to do one thing, the one thing we hate above all else, and that is to be humble, to actually realize that we aren't self-sufficient, that we can't do everything ourselves. I mean, I, I can still remember, and I guess it wasn't that long ago, um, when I used to do all of the, the graphics that you see on the screen behind. I think every, every single one on a Sunday would have been done by me. Until one day somebody said, it was probably Brendan. <laughs> he said, you know, you shouldn't be doing that anymore. Because there are lots of other people in the, well, there are a few other people in the church who can do that as well as you. And probably a couple who can do it better. And I said, rubbish. I like doing it. Why should I burden anybody else with this? He said, they would like to do it. Really? I said, I'll give them a, a go. <laughs> and so we, we trialed a new person. And they were very good. In fact, I will admit, they were better than me. Which should be a great encourage, encouragement to me because I trained them. On my knee in front of the computer, two years old. <laughs> but then it got to the pointy end was when I tried to do some graphics. I was told No. You're not allowed to do that because it's not your job anymore. It's somebody else's responsibility and you have to let it go. That was actually a really, really hard thing for me to do because I, I got value out of the self-sufficiency that I could, I could do it. You know, George wrote me a rude note the other day. I wanted to put something he proclaim and he said, do you know how to do that? <laughs> that is really insulting. To, to a boomer, that is like, how dare you? Meet me outside in the schoolyard. We're going to sort this out. But we have to recognize that our importance is actually because of the connections we make, not because of our talents, our, our skills, and our self-sufficiency. And until we get that through, we don't get vulnerable with other people, and we don't learn to trust other people. The church is actually a great place to learn these skills and let our commitment to others and our sense of accountability change our relationships with others and with God. I've actually found that my relationship with God has changed since we, we have had a team of people around us who have taken on some of the responsibilities, many of the responsibilities I had when we first started this church. Mainly I pray a, a, a lot to God now in fear that things are going to happen. Because if I, I'm not there, I don't know. I turn up to church in the morning hoping that things have happened to make it work. Because nobody tells me anymore. Nobody asks me to do them. Nobody asks me to fill in. And so I, I actually have to trust people. And, and you might think, well, that, that's easy. You've told them what to do. They, they just do it. But it's an area of vulnerability that we all have to do because it's actually trusting those people to do what they do. And most of the time, it's annoying because not only do I pray to God that you know, they do it right, but when I come in, they've actually done it better than I could have, better than I expected. People rise to the occasion, and I should be grateful. But we need to get to that place where 
we're accountable to God for what we've released, but we're also trusting God that he's actually in charge of this church. He's actually in charge of the people who are released into serving. He's in charge of what happens throughout all of this. And so I just want you to remember that. The cost of following Jesus is there, but there are so many benefits to being part of that community. Our unity in Christ, our shared experiences, the fact that we can trust other people and be vulnerable, and the fact that we should learn through our connection with Jesus to be accountable and committed to the cause of Christ. Can I ask you all to stand, please? I don't know why people say things like that. I'm going to ask you all to stand. I'm not asking your permission to ask you. But it doesn't sound as demanding if I say that, does it? I could just say, stand, sit, kneel. But I want us to be in a, in a position where we're standing on our feet before God. I love what Brendan said earlier about you know, where, where, where's God for you right now? I really love that bit about st standing in front of a child, talking to them. <laughs> they, they've got no idea what you're saying. Five minutes later, turn and say, huh? <laughs> and I want us to think of God right now. And think of him coming closer. Because the impact of relationships is greatest when we're close. And I believe the reason God wants to get close to us is not just so that he can talk to us and tell us things. Because we often see God, I think, as a, a rule giver. Somebody who wants to speak into our lives to fix the things that are wrong, to put us on the right track, to change the, the uh, dud things into good things. But really often, I believe God just wants to get close so that he can reach out and touch us to fill us with that sense of belonging, to give us hope and encouragement and a sense of family. But to do that, we have to acknowledge him as the head of our family, our Lord and our Saviour. Because he won't reach out and put a hand on our shoulder until we give him permission to actually do that so I want to give you an opportunity if you're online this morning or if you're right here and you want to ask Jesus to come close to lay his hand on your shoulder and accept you as a son or a daughter of the most high God and I want us to do that right now whether you've you feel you need to do that or whether you're secure in your relationship with God, I think it's good to proclaim sometimes our relationship out loud. So I want you to repeat after me. Dear Lord Jesus, accept me 
as your son or daughter. I thank you that as I come before you and confess my sins, you forgive them. Thank you for my salvation. And thank you that my salvation can bring others to know you. Lord, I acknowledge that you are my Lord and my Savior from this day forth. Amen. Thanks, Brenda. Fantastic.